You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Hi, I'm Nathan Jones and I'm the Senior Minister at Oasis Church Waterloo. A few weeks ago, Steve Chalk and I recorded a podcast responding to some questions that we'd been asked during our Sunday Grill sermon series. There were so many questions that we ended up talking for a very long time. So even though we recorded this as one podcast, we thought we'd release it in three parts. So here's part two. Uh, but yeah, we should move on to the, the second of our questions, um, which was, why are we LGBT plus inclusive when other churches aren't? Again, we won't talk um, about much of the detail of this because there is a podcast out there which you might have already heard. If not, you can go back and, and seek that one out that I did a few weeks ago. But again, there were just so many questions about this one that we didn't get anywhere near uh, answering. So we'll try and answer a few of those. Um, there's a few that, again, are really similar. How do you explain that you're gay and love God to Christians that are anti-LGBT and how do you deal with Christians who are anti-LGBT? There's a load of questions around that one so why don't we kick off with that one. How do I maintain authentic relationships with Christian friends who are anti-LGBT as well? What do you think Steve? Uh, what I, what, one of the things I think about it is everybody's on a journey so you know, I was brought up in a church where I believed that to be gay was a sin and it was somehow being less than an optimal, optimal human being because I was taught that. And then I went to a theological college where I was taught that. Um, and my life or my outlook was slowly changed as I got to know gay people who I trusted. I didn't know anyone who was gay before then. I realise now, actually, that at theological college, one or two people were gay, but they were so scared that they never said that. You know, they lived under this thing. You know, they, mm. they would say now that they've been taught that they had same-sex attraction and they were doing their very best to overcome it, so much so that they completely hid it. But now, as I talk to them, that had caused them a huge pain and trauma and a sense of shame and guilt, etc., etc. But everybody hid everything from one another. But as the years went by, and in my case, I got involved with media a bit and uh, arts a bit, and I began to meet people who, who didn't share my worldview, who weren't Christians necessarily. Well, most, none of them were, actually and were gay, and so I pre approached these people to begin with this, with this huge amount of fear and trepidation, and slowly I learned that I liked them. They were kind. They were kind to me. They were kinder to me than I was being to them. I was judging them quietly, but they were accepting of me in my, my moral rigidness and theological stuntedness and I think it was through that that I began to see that I needed to change so all I would say about myself if I at this age met the Steve Chalk age 30 I'd look down on him because he couldn't see things as I do and I think that's a mistake as well because the Steve Chalk of 10 years hence if there is one would probably if they were morally righteous look down on the Steve Job that I am at the moment. We're all on a journey. 
Yeah, and I kind of hope in some respects that, I think we talked about this recently, but um, somebody emailed in and uh, and asked a question about inclusion and said, um, uh, you talk a lot about being inclusive of those who are LGBT. Um, what about uh, inclusion around class issues, which I think is an area that the church isn't very good at? And I um, and I was halfway through this email back, um, and I remember that I I'd spoken on this idea of God and class um, five or six years ago, and I was just about to leave the house. And uh, so as I walked to this place I was going to, I listened back to my podcast from five or six years ago where I preached on this, um, and I probably agree with eighty percent of what I said then. I think. But there's a good 20% that as I listened to it, I thought, I wouldn't say that now. And actually, I I think differently about that now. Mm. And I was really pleased with that. Mm. Because actually, I'd be really disappointed if I listened back to a talk that I gave five, six years ago. um, And everything was exactly now as it was then. Because where have I grown? What have I read? What have I listened to? What conversations have I had over that last five, six years, if that isn't the case? Mm. So Um, we're all growing in different ways all of the time. But I think the greatest maturity is to not only recognise that of ourselves, but to to recognise that in others. And the funny thing is that somebody might got, have got a very inclusive place in terms of recognising the image of God in someone who's, who's gay or bisexual or, or talking of gender, trans, mm. but still be quite racist. Mm. Yeah. Or, and have blind spots in terms of their morality around paying their tax or or or, or giving or lying. Mm, mm. So, so we are all on a spectrum, aren't we? On a journey where I would say Christ is slowly sorting me out. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do think that there's. Um, Brian McLaren uh, wrote a book called Faith After Doubt a few years ago, and he talks about the kind of stages that you might move through as your faith progresses or uh, as your faith deepens or as you get older or whatever it might be. And he says that in stage one, you know, Christianity is right or wrong. You're in or out. God is good. Everybody else is bad. And it's, you know, and then as you kind of mature, you might go through these stages to towards stage four, which is where you hit this faith after doubt. But he says that um, that no one is more exclusive than a stage three Christian who kind of feels like they've got it all sorted out you know and their theology is the right theology you know and they're inclusive of LGBT people they're inclusive of people from other religions they're inclusive of everybody apart from those people who have the same beliefs they did five years ago yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. there's a lot of truth in that isn't there yes there's a great deal of truth in that yeah. as, as, as we constantly as we constantly journey on um, mm. I think that that, yeah, keeping an open, keeping an open mind, but keeping yourself centered on Christ and recognizing there's lots of work to do on yourself, and God needs to do on you, keeps you in a humble place before you leave in to judge others. And the thing I was going to say is this: the way I read the Gospels, I don't know about uh, you, Nath, but the way I read the Gospels, Jesus' anger was only ever directed at one group of people. And it was the Pharisees, the religious leaders. It was those who believed they knew best and left others out. Jesus was only ever angry with self-righteous people who believed they got it together and brought other people down. Um, I think there's a great lesson in that. Because you have to ask yourself, don't you, who are who are the disciples of the day? We Today we always ask, 
But who are the Pharisees of today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so many of these, we should move on to the next one. There's an interesting one here that um, one of the things that we often say at church is that we never want to be a church where the person who stands up at the front with the microphone tells everyone what to believe and everybody has to then just believe what that person says. We always talk about wanting to genuinely engage and have conversation and debate about these things. And a sermon on a Sunday should always be the starting point for a conversation, not the ending point for a conversation. Um, but I often think that people people see our church as it's LGBT inclusive and everybody is fully on board with that, fully on the same page and, you know, and, and, and there's no room for kind of dissent in that. But one of the questions that was written down was, can we be inclusive and loving to those who identify as LGBT plus without changing the traditional view on marriage? Which I guess is not the kind of question that I would have expected to get on a Sunday morning. What do you think? Um, well, what I think about that is that the question I want to ask back to the person who asked that question is what is the traditional view on marriage and is the traditional view on marriage the same thing as the biblical view on marriage is that what they mean and if it is the biblical view on marriage well which of the very many biblical views on marriage are they talking about but you see the traditional view on marriage until very very recently was till death do us part, so there was no room for divorce of, of any sort. And if somebody got divorced, there was no room for their inclusion back into a church or any a type of healing and restoration and no room for remarriage. In fact, some churches are still like that. They won't do remarriage. So is that the traditional view of marriage? Or have we moved on from that? And when did that become the traditional view of marriage? The one thing we can say in the whole of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, from the beginning to the end, including the maps and the index and the pictures, is there's no model of marriage anything like the model of marriage that we practice today. And it's, I'll shut up with this and ask you what you think. The funny thing is we're obsessed with marriage certificates. Are you living together or you have, have you got a marriage certificate? Are you married? There are no marriage certificates in the Bible anywhere. There's not one mention. There are an awful huge number of mentions of divorce certificates because the divorce certificate was there. There was no such thing as a marriage certificate. It was about two communities coming together uh, without without necessarily a vicar present and, a, you know, a registrar. There was none of that. That was none of that. It was commu two communities celebrating the union of these two people, two families celebrating the union of these two people. The divorce certificate happened for only one reason, to announce that a future suitor of the, 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 the girl involved, he could... He could take her as her wife and she didn't owe anything to the other family. He wouldn't suddenly find that he was marrying her and inheriting a huge great bill. The divorce certificate simply said this is at an end simply so there could be a remarriage. Well, how does any of that fit with our traditional view of marriage as still preached in many churches today? Mm, yeah, I think I'd probably, um, I would agree with all of that and I would, I'd probably push this person a little bit further on that and say that 
I actually personally think the answer is no, we can't be fully inclusive and fully loving without changing. I think probably what they, mm. the traditional view of marriage, probably what they mean by that is one man, one woman. And yeah, and I think I would, I would push back and say, no, for me, I don't think we can be because I think that unless we are fully inclusive and we are saying that all of these aspects of life are mm. equally available to those who love somebody of the same gender, mm. then I don't think that is fully no. inclusive and no. loving. No, no, I agree with that. I agree with that as well. The question is, of course, is what is the definition of marriage? That's what everybody's getting at. But that's why I talk about all these cultural uh, things and uh, because whatever, what we have called marriage isn't a deep historic thing that's existed for thousands of years. This has constantly been adapted. And of course, uh, we know that many of the Old Testament biblical heroes were married to many people all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There is a similar question, actually. Did Jesus ever define marriage? Well, some people would say that he did, that he defined marriage as being between a man and a woman, which is taken from Matthew's Gospel, which is what you're referring to. I don't think that that's what that passage is about at all. You're be probably better at explaining it than me, but um, the, the, the truth is that if you read the story, which is when it's claimed Jesus defined a marriage as between a man and a woman, he was actually asked a question. And the question was from some of the religious leaders who had a dispute themselves going on. You, you really need to read a piece of his, you know, the history books around the role of this. So in the Old Testament law, arising from the Old Testament law, there was a dispute about when could a man divorce a wife and give her a divorce certificate because the Bible was full of divorce certificates. And there were two groups of religious leaders who had a different view of this. And one group thought it could only be for adultery. And the other group thought that it could be for anything that the man found displeasing. This is based on, on verses in the Torah and definitions of what the books of Moses meant. And what Jesus is saying, just taking the cultural norm there look a man and is given to a man in marriage and nothing should separate them the whole idea is that they're together and they're faithful to one another not that you argue over when technically you're allowed to get divorced or not and that's what the discussion is about that was a real hot potato in Jesus day as I'm sure you know yeah, there's loads in that chapter, isn't there? Jesus isn't saying no to equal marriage. He's trying to get the Pharisees and anybody else to realise the importance of marriage, particularly to yes. protect women. That yeah. that section is all yeah. about gender equality, much yeah. more than it is about equal marriage. Yeah, so when you opt into this relationship, don't kind of split hairs about what you can get you out of it again. You're in it and give yourself. Yeah, yeah. just looked it up now. And it's, it's also in Mark 10... Um, and in Mark's version, it says if she divorces, she commits adultery, which is something that would be totally unheard of in those days. It was all about the man and the man's rights in this and not the woman and the woman's rights in this. So I think, again, to look at that as whether Jesus was pro-same-sex marriage or not is, like you've explained, uh, not a great understanding no, of how that... Because yeah. it's just not about that thing you, at, at 
at all. Um, it is about loyalty and faithfulness. Um, two more questions on this. Will Christianity ever undo the reputational damage that it has caused itself on this issue? Just a small question. Yes. What do you think? <laughs> what do I think? I think my one of the things that I've that's been interesting I think over the last few years is that I think when we as a church became publicly inclusive we went through a long period of um, most of the people or the majority of people who joined us were Christians who identified as LGBT who had been chucked out of other churches or failed to find a community where they could be fully themselves but I think that's shifted over the last few years and I would say that we're now getting an increasing number um, of straight Christians or straight people who want to come to the church because they have friends they have family members or just generally they believe in inclusion which is a, a really positive thing for us but I would say that the conversations that I have outside of the church is that I'm not sure that certainly not for a long time it, it will undo that damage because I think that Generally in the media, you know, we're a week on from the SNP having a, a leadership election where the Christian in the leadership campaign was the least inclusive of all. And I think that probably is still the story that is told by the church at large. And it's certainly the story that's heard most uh, and clearest by those outside the church. So, yeah, I don't know whether I would say that Christianity would never undo the reputational damage, but I'd say that certainly we've got a long way to go. And I'm not sure that nationally, publicly, we are um, making too many steps towards that. That's no. a bit of a negative response. No, no, <laughs> well, well I, I, I got a negative, I'd have a negative response and a positive one. The negative response is really basic to what you said. Look, we're still living, aren't we, with the long legacy of the church's connection and partnership with the slave trade. Mm -hmm. You know, so 200 yeah. years on, there are endless people who are angry to their core about what the church did then. These things have a, a long, long, long legacy. You can talk about the church's uh, teachings taking children away from unmarried mothers, separating from their children. These things are not forgotten. And, and so it's what we're doing at the moment now, as we've been doing for such a long time, turning gay people away. And I, I would say, Dave, my fear is that the battles that took place over LGB inclusion, some of them 30 years ago, Clause 28, some people know what that is and some people won't, the banning of talking about homosexuality in schools, etc., etc. that big fight, that was 30 years ago. I think that what's going on now is a real culture war around trans people. I think that they're being thrown under the bus and I think that there is just so much that's said that it's so harmful up to trans trans people and in 30 years time I think that society would have moved on and woken up but there is huge damage being done now so I think that's all negative on the other hand and I, and I don't I'm not trying to minimize any of that mm. and as you know like you I fight for inclusion for these people who are my friends you know mm. Um, mm. In fact, I've, I've, um, I've just 
put together an article which I hope will be in a national newspaper about, about the cause of the inclusion of trans people mm. with, uh, today, we've done that today. But I also think, isn't it wonderful how many people who are gay or bisexual or trans do come to church, mm. Mm. are part of a church, do serve? Isn't it wonderful how many black people who still bear a slave name mm. are really committed to their faith and are out there as activists changing the world for good and bringing hope. Mm, mm. So there's always renewal and there's always restoration and there's always, there's always redemption. And there are people that will always move on and grasp the goodness of this wonderful news that God is love in spite of all of the ways in which that story has been betrayed in years gone past or today. Yeah, and I think what gives me a bit of hope as well is that when I'm meeting up with other Baptist churches or other Baptist ministers or, you know, those types of things, just the number of affirming churches just mm. grows every no. time. When we first mm. stuck our head above the parapet in 2015, was it? Something like that, maybe earlier than that, 13, I think, yeah. Like there weren't that many other churches that were doing that publicly, were there? Obviously, we weren't the first, we know that. There were great churches doing a great job, but but there weren't that many, whereas now I think the tide is no, very the, slowly the turning. The difference good. was that we were an evangelical church, we weren't a high church. Yeah. And yeah, the, it was. A, I remember the year as well. So, uh, so we publicly said what we privately, or quietly, not privately, but we've been just who we were, but we, I wrote about it in 2012, and I think it was published right at the beginning of 2013, January, something like that. I only know that because that's when, um, I don't remember many dates. <laughs> I really don't. But I remember that one because I just, like, was thrown out of so many things as a result. So it was unusual then. And, um, and I was told that I would be thrown out of the Baptist ministry. I'm a Baptist minister. And, mm. and, um, but that never happened. And now look at what's happened. And I always say to people, using a metaphor, you know, the sandcastle of resistance is there, but the gentle tide of inclusion is washing up the beach mm. and is wearing the sandcastle down. I genuinely think that's what we're living through. But I don't seek to minimise the pain to people caused during that process. Yeah. Um there's one last question on this one, and then we should move on. But you've kind of touched on it, really. What do you think, as a church leader, are the real struggles for a church to become LGBT plus affirming? Um, yeah, just want to talk a little bit about what it was like at that point when we decided to publicly... Because I, So I've been part of the church for nearly 15 years now and we moved to London looking for an inclusive church because we'd been part of one and it was a, an important part of our theology um, and so back in 2009 this would have been it was clear when you came to the church that this was an affirming church but we didn't publicly tell that story until you said a, a few years after that um, so yeah just want to talk for a minute just about what was it that tipped the balance for us to publicly stand up and what were the struggles that went on at that point? I think in all of these things, the hard thing is courage, isn't it, at the end of the day? 
It's mm. a really hard thing. So the reason we were quietly affirming is because that's what we were. You know, we love people, you know, and that's just it, you know. So that's what we believed and that's what we lived out. But it, my own personal little bit in it, uh, Nathan's just personal to me, I'd, um, I'd kind of prayed for ages and ages that the tide would turn, you know, the gentle tide of conclusion would start coming in or whatever, and, um, and, and, and nothing happened. And I, you, I thought, you know, someone's going to stand up and say something about this in evangelicalism, and nobody did. And then, you know, some still in Oasis will tell you this because they've been around all this. I started saying, do you know, I could write a book about this. And 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 then people said, yeah, but people would stop funding us and people would lose their jobs and lose mm. their, their, you know, all the rest of it. And I, and I came up with this idea and I said, I'll write a book, but I'll write it in someone else's name. <laughs> you know, like C.S. Lewis wrote Surprised by Joy. I'm not yeah. comparing myself with surprising <laughs> skills, by the way. But he wrote Surprised by Joy under a different name, you see. Mm. And, and then I realised that that was stupid because that would just be an anonymous person. It had to be someone that people knew who was saying this. Yeah. So I realised I couldn't do that. And then my next plan, I honestly was praying all the time that someone would have the courage to stand up. And then my next plan, and th th again, some of the trustees would tell you this, I came up with this idea and I said, I'll write a book about it and then it can be published after my death because then we won't get into trouble. <laughs> you know, it's a stupid idea, you know, but it shows you how desperate you are. Because I realised then, within nanoseconds of saying it, well, I wouldn't get into trouble because I'd be dead, but they'd all get that, like, stung still. And so I came to the view that I should write about this, and then I, re I did write about it, and then our board spent a year, at least, just looking at it, our different boards, we've got several boards, looking at it and questioning it and debating it, because they were all scared that we'd lose funding. And then we published it, and then we did lose funding. <laughs> so, kind of, so it takes courage in the end. And there are consequences. But you've got to, in the end, I would say, my biggest fear was that I'd lived my whole life without saying what I really thought. Yeah, part of the change for me, I guess, as well, recently has been a greater understanding of the negative impact that the church has had on friends of mine who are now part of our community you know bad theology kills you know mm. bad theology is you know mm. has, has caused so much trauma to yeah. to friends of mine you know to people that I love for me the response to that has been to think I've just got to be more vocal and I've just mm. got to stand up a bit more and even if it does cost me you know some you know relationships or you know whatever it might be that is not a big cost compared to some of the things that some of my mates have gone through. And so consequently, you don't want to speak on behalf of, if people don't want you to speak on behalf of, but where you can add a voice and where you can be an ally, um, then, yeah, we need yeah. to do that as much as we can. So I've got, I got a friend who, um, who uh, runs a big charity and uh, he's a Christian and he says that he uses me as a litmus test so what he does is when people come want to come and work with his charity, um, when he's interviewing them or when he's talking to a possible about possible partnership with someone else, he, he and I know he actually does this. He'll he'll chat away and he'll just say, D now 
you know, my friend Steve Chalk would always say, and he says, he throws my name in. Uh, honestly, he says that, because he says, and then you just watch their eyes, and he says, you can tell instantly whether you want to employ them or not. <laughs> and he swears by this, this limit test. So what he's saying is if they like you, he doesn't employ them. Is that what he says? <laughs> so, so I, I mean, so that's a, it's a funny story, but the reality is... Um, uh, the reality of the thing is I was chucked out of many things and my diary was emptied and there are still people who have never, ever spoken to me again, mm. who I thought were my friends, my mm. real mates. But your point is the point, isn't it? I realised early on that any pain I suffered, any loss I suffered, suffered is like infinitesimally small in relation to the pain that some of our friends have lived through and the trauma and the oppression that they felt. Mm. We both have friends who still find it hard to walk into a church building or to sing any worship song because it brings back wave after wave of self-hatred and shame and they it's so hard to escape it, isn't mm. it? Mm. Yeah. We both know people like that. Yeah. And I, you know, but people who say, I know I'm in a church where I'm welcomed and celebrated, but it's still a church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how deep it runs. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Which is why every day we keep on working and try and do a bit more, isn't it? We should move on to our last question, which is a slightly tricky can, one. Can I say something just before we move on to our yeah. last question? Because it's not about you and me and us, is it? It's like, so people say to me, but what if you're wrong? Mm. Yeah, sure mm. they say it to you. But what if, what if you're wrong? Mm. What if these Bible passages do mean what everybody says? Firstly, genuinely, though we've not gone into the theology bit, the reality is those passages and the hermeneutics of them aren't about any of those things, are they? We, no. we know that, and scholarship knows that. It's worth saying two things there. One is the Bible isn't the private domain of Christians. The Bible is read by linguists, historians, social historians, psychologists, etc., 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 and 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 around the world, it's Greek and Hebrew are studied. The world knows what these words mean. Mm-hmm. So the church might hang on to some private view that this is put there to curse homosexual people, but there is absolutely not a shred of academic truth behind any of that. Mm-hmm. And the whole planet knows it, even if a few um, right-wing um, calling themselves theologians fail to grasp it. Mm-hmm. The Bible is now our, pri- our, our private book. That, that's the first thing. But here's, here's the litmus test, I think, really. People say to me, but what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? And, and I say, well, if at the end of my life I stand in front of God and God says to me, Steve, you know something? You are really kind and inclusive, a little bit too inclusive for my liking. <laughs> if that's... All that God has got to stick on you is worth taking the chance. Yeah, that's it. If God says you're more loving than I am, then I think that's going to be a bit of a surprise. But yeah, I think I always say something similar that, you know, you're metaphorically standing in front of the pearly gates. And if I feel like the question is going to be, did you love? 
did you include not you got the exegesis mm-hmm. slightly wrong of that verse in Romans 1 or whatever it might be it's going to be did you love did you include and you always want to be able to give a positive answer to that don't you mm-hmm. 